Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. Hello everyone. I hope you all had a lovely festive break and enjoyed the return to work in January. 2024 is now well underway and the show has a huge amount to cover this year. I know you've had to wait for this episode. I'm sorry about that. Life is especially challenging at the moment. After 20 years together, my wife and I have made the mutual decision to get a divorce following a few very difficult years. This might also explain to you why some of the episodes were delayed last year. I remain committed to this show and will probably be working on an episode when they finally lower me and my coffin into the ground. So even if there has been the odd delay along the way, we have a lot ahead of us. At least today's episode is a bit of a longer one, as there's so much to cover and enjoy. A lot of the focus this year will be on Victorian India, but we've got some great minisodes to look forward to as well. Patrons got the start of the Great Exploration series, and the next episode in that is in the works. If you want to support the podcast and want to listen to those extra episodes, then head on over to Patreon and sign up from as little as £3 a month. That's less than a portion of chips these days. I'd like to welcome new patron Brad Rose, who has become a respectable governess. Thank you, and enjoy the Polar Voyage, the Murder Specials, and the Social Unrest Patrons episodes. Also, I've had a lovely five-star review on Apple Podcasts, from T-Girl93 USA, quote, I started listening to this a few days ago and really enjoy it. The topics are interesting and the show is well written. The host keeps your attention and I enjoy his dry sense of humour. I thank him for all of his hard work and study, end quote. My pleasure and thank you for taking the time and effort to leave me a review. Annalise Friend has asked in the Facebook group about books on the early Victorian years, specifically food recipes and culture, I would recommend, first and foremost, How to Be a Victorian by Dr. Ruth Goodman. It is an invaluable, well-written introduction to the Victorian period, and each section covers a different topic, like dress or food, broken up into the early, middle and late periods. If anyone has any suggestions for Annalise, please post them in the group. Now, before we get started proper, I'd like to play you a promotional clip from friend of the podcast, Gavin Whitehead, who hosts the Art of Crime podcast. If you love Victorian history, you should check it out. Madame Tussaud, we all know the name, but few of us realize the historical significance of her wax museum, nor do we appreciate that she redefined the genre of true crime. I'm Gavin Whitehead, host of The Art of Crime, a history podcast about the unlikely collisions between true crime and the arts. Our latest season tells two stories. First, it chronicles Tussauds' career, starting in pre-revolutionary France and ending in Victorian London. Second, it tracks the evolution of the Chamber of Horrors, a showroom in her wax museum that exhibited macabre curiosities, including effigies of notorious criminals. 
We'll hear how Tussaud won patronage from the French royal family, narrowly escaped the reign of terror, and became one of the most celebrated showwomen in London. We'll also cover the most divisive assassin of the French Revolution, the last man to be hung, drawn, and quartered for high treason in England, and the glamorous murderer who attained notoriety as a modern Lady Macbeth. Subscribe to The Art of Crime wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we are back in the Indian subcontinent. To understand Victorian India, we need to look at one of the biggest influences on Victorian and Indian history. Not a politician or a governor or a brilliant inventor. It was a company. You've almost certainly heard of it. The Honourable East India Company which is ironic as a name, since it most certainly was not terribly honourable, nor was it originally supposed to have very much to do with the Indian subcontinent. I'm not going to give a complete history of the company here, although if anyone wants to create a podcast on it, I will be an eager listener. By the time of Victoria's coronation, it was already old. Formed on the 31st of December 1600, It was really supposed to help Queen Elizabeth I in her race against the Spanish and Dutch. It performed exceptionally poorly in the first 20 years or so. It was badly underfunded, had very poor quality employees, was drastically outperformed by its Dutch competitor and struggled to attract attention compared to the exciting opportunities in Virginia. It seemed a sideshow and was forced to give up hopes of competing with the Dutch in the Spice Islands, leaving them to continue to make what were at the time vast fortunes. In a way, this failure was to have world-changing implications. The Honourable Ick turned its attention to the next wealthy place it could think of to try and make some money, India and the Mughal Empire. This would begin an ascent to power that no modern company has managed to match. You might think Google or Microsoft or Amazon or the Industrial Commercial Bank of China are powerful, but they pale in comparison to the vast powers of the Honourable Ick. At its height, the Honourable Ick ruled empires, commanded huge armies, had the power to declare war and peace, to make its own laws to mint coins and control its own currencies and to make international treaties. In many ways, the Honourable Ick was not a company at all, but a privatised empire, vaguely answerable to the directors in London, who were, in theory, under the ambit of Parliament, assuming Parliament suddenly decided it wanted to stop outsourcing the world's largest empire and take on the enormous hassle of doing it themselves. So imagine Google had the right to make its own laws, own territories, raise armies, set and collect taxes, set up a system of police and courts, imprison citizens, and create colonial settlements. When you look at it like that, you realise how hollow modern companies' claims to global dominance are. When Tesla dislikes a law, it lobbies Washington. If Amazon wants to beat a competitor in Europe, it has to make better services or try to attack them in court or mount a hostile takeover. When the Honourable Ick 
wanted to break a serious competitor, it could pass laws prohibiting trade, uphold those laws in the courts it ran, and then imprison dissenters. At the most extreme, it could force its will on other countries, not by lobbying, but by invasions, with horse, foot and guns, as the expression meant. That actually meant company cavalry, company infantry, company artillery, backed by its armed merchant fleets, and frequently with the support of the dreaded Royal Navy. Due to its Elizabethan origins, the company's charter was vague and allowed it to have a sovereign mandate over what one contemporary sneered was two-thirds of the trading world. It was entitled to run these territories, and it enticed, competed, schemed, bullied, or even conquered whenever profitable to expand these territories. I've mentioned the doctrine of terra nullis before in the Australian and South African Empire episodes. This was the idea that these territories could be legitimately occupied as they were uninhabited. Of course, the actual native inhabitants were deemed not to count for whatever excuse could be made to stick. For example, lack of farming, lack of cities, migrant populations. Since vast tracts of the lands in these areas were genuinely low population density and had mostly slash and burn or other subsistence agricultures or other forms of agriculture the Europeans didn't call proper agriculture, it was vaguely plausible. I'm not justifying it, simply setting out how some Europeans state their claims. Such nonsense would not work for India. The Indian subcontinent was vast and known to Europeans since at least the time of Alexander the Great. It had great trade routes stretching across the Red Sea or up over the fabled Silk Roads. It had a long history of true civilization. As we saw in episode 54, some of the civilization in India can justifiably claim to be amongst the founding civilizations on earth. When the Honourable Ik arrived, much of India was ruled by the Mughal Empire. The Mughal Emperor was probably the richest monarch on earth in the 17th century. The population of the subcontinent was vast. The Mughal rulers were descended from the Muslim Turkic conquerors of the 15th century who arrived under the command of Zahir Uddin Muhammad, known to history as Babur, which is a nickname meaning tiger or panther. He was descended from Timur and Genghis Khan and was a highly cultured and educated conqueror and, although culturally Turkic himself, he was able to draw support from the various Mongol rulers due to his family and tribal ancestors. He had a varied history of bouncing from victory to complete defeat during his early life, even living as a peasant after one disaster. He bounced back yet again and took over Kabul before finally starting a campaign of reconquering Asia, then raiding into India through the famous Khyber Pass. Crucially, he was a military innovator and championed the use of matchlock guns and cannon in open battles 
His first battle in India saw his 20,000 strong army facing off against a formidable force of over 100,000 from the Muslim Sultanate of Delhi. His victory was stunning and decisive. He followed it up with two other belting wins and suddenly the various sultanates and kingdoms of the subcontinent were coming under imperial control. The Mughal Empire he established nearly collapsed before it got started, despite his immense military abilities. He died after only four years, and his son was faced with a crisis of rebellions. Since the son ended up being called Akbar the Great, and the Mughal Empire would last for centuries, you can see how it all turned out. I know that seems a bit of a tangent, but it shows something very important. India was not, before the arrival of the Mughals, a united nation, nor was it purely a Hindu one. Islam did not arrive with the Mughals. It was already there. It had been there since the 7th century and grew in power and influence through trade and conquest. Muslim armies were creating the vast Islamic world centred on the Middle East, the old Persian territories and the Silk Roads. India was drawn into the Islamic trade networks and was exporting spices, silks, glass, paper and manufactured goods. As the centuries passed, silver from Europe flowed into India and China. The Islamic Delhi Sultanate was founded when the Ghurid Muslims from the Afghan region conquered the whole Sindh region in the 13th century. The Delhi Sultanate would later play a key role in repelling Mongol invasions only to fall to the Muslim Turkic descendants of Timur and Genghis Khan under Babur. The Mughal Empire was in many ways a continuation of waves of Islamic migration. Islam itself was becoming a mighty and cultured almost global civilization in its own right. So its fusion with Indian culture saw immense benefits, including many technological advances. As always, though, I will remind you that phrases like this cover a huge amount of human suffering. Babur and his son Akbar the Great would feel pretty pleased with the view from the top. The people who built the empire and the sultanates were the common soldiers who ended up spilling their blood and guts whilst dying in agony, forgotten soon after. That's before you get to the huge number of farmers and villagers who were the inevitable collateral damage of war. Ask yourself, if you were them, would you honestly care if the people burning your farm and raping your daughter were fighting for or against your distant ruler, a man who you've never met? and who wouldn't stop to scrape you off the bottom of his shoe. On top of that, the ethnic diversity in India is vast. And remember that Hindu and Muslim are not ethnicities. They are labels describing people who are members of certain religions. That point is often lost. A Muslim can be anyone from a Japanese man living in New York to a Scottish girl in London to a Saudi man in Dubai, to a Zulu girl. When we talk about a Muslim ruler 
meeting a Victorian, it doesn't mean he was an outsider from Saudi Arabia and had travelled all the way to India to take over a Muslim territory. India has a huge range of ethnicities, over 2,000, and subcultures of enormous, staggering variety across the subcontinent. Kingdoms and sultanates and princedoms rose and fell. Alliances and trade linked many together, but it is also crucial to remember that most transport in pre-modern India was limited to main trunk roads or rivers and relied on human porters or oxen. It was an extremely hard place to travel around once you were off the main routes. When the Portuguese had arrived in India in the 17th century, they were expecting a repeat of the kind of triumph the Spanish were having in the New World. Instead, they found the Mughal Empire was rich beyond the dreams of Europe and had an army of up to four million people. That army was not a stone or bronze age force like the Aztecs. It was at near technological parity. The Portuguese had attempted to establish fortified base, but were swiftly crushed, with 400 prisoners dragged in chains before the emperor to beg for mercy. The early British attempts at establishing trade went better, since Britain tended to send more romantically inclined noblemen turned adventurers who could survive the journey, then hold conversations about art and trade with the highly cultured Mughal emperors. The blunt reality, though, was that the British appeared rough around the edges and far less civilised, and Indian art, architecture, design, clothing, at the top end of the wealth scale, was easily a match for anything in Europe, outside perhaps Rome or the Vatican or the Palace of Madrid. Certainly, no one would describe 17th and 18th century Britain as a cultural jewel, but they certainly would describe the Mughal court. What the people of the Indian continent failed to realise was that the British and the Honourable Ick had a few very dangerous attributes. They were greedy, ruthless, patient, pragmatic in the extreme, and incredibly adaptable. Other European nations might have the pride to spark off vast wars when things didn't go their way. Early British explorers simply went home and said that large-scale conquest was pointless, but there was still money to be made. The British didn't care so much about national pride if the money flowed. The Honourable Ick would bend and sway, duck and weave, bribe or crush, as was expedient. The Portuguese had tried to capture cities and force trade at sword point or at the cannon's mouth. The Honourable Ick simply started opening small factory trading posts with imperial permission. Madras soon became the foremost trading zone and then a real colonial city, followed by Bombay which was acquired by accident through a dynastic marriage and possible mistranslation in the dowry documents from Portuguese to English. This gave the Honourable Ick one of the finest naval bases in the East Pacific, and it would later be transferred to the Royal Navy in the 1830s. The mighty fleets of the Honourable Ick were building powerful networks. The money 
began to flow back to England, and then from England back to India, or around the nascent First Empire. To quote an excellent book, The East India Company at Home, 1757 to 1857, quote, From the Battle of Plassey in 1757 to the outbreak of the Indian Uprising in 1857, objects, persons and wealth flowed to Britain from Asia. Gifted or purchased, inherited or looted, Indian material culture was both a primary source of wealthy Britain's desire for trade with India and a conspicuous consequence of their imperial exploits on the subcontinent. Whereas agricultural produce and its byproducts, notably Caribbean sugar and rum, dominated Britain's Atlantic commerce, Indian ocean trade extended from raw goods and comestibles to a cornucopia of oriental luxuries manufactured by skilled craftsmen. Access to commodities that spanned from spices and saltpetre to fine textiles and Chinese porcelain motivated the company's merchants from the Ix Charter as a trading monopoly in 1600 until the loss of its remaining commercial privileges in 1833. Exceptionally high levels of risk bedeviled this Asian trade and the swinging mortality rates cut swathe through the Honourable Ix ranks. But company men who survived and flourished could, and demonstrably did, gain vast wealth. Channeled back to Britain, company profits provided abundant funds, country house purchases, refurbishment and interior display, figuring British, continental European and Asian wealth, craftsmanship and design in exotic new domestic combinations. Already in the early 18th century, Indian profits had begun to leave conspicuous marks on British interiors. The Madras fortune of Lehu Yale was displayed prominently at Yale's London residence and at Place Grona, his ancestral home in Wales, together with Golconda diamonds, a blackamoor's head, Dutch and Flemish paintings, as well as portraits of six Indian kings, an Indian queen, and 16 Chinese noblemen, lent the profits of his lucrative company Khmer domestic material form. End quote. This shows how diverse the ways of acquiring wealth were. It is fashionable these days to just say the British stole everything, but that is historically nonsense. Yes, a vast amount was stolen, but a vast amount was traded, gifted, or mutually manufactured. The great country houses of England and Scotland were intimately tied to the empire and frequently to the Honourable Ick. They would not look how they do or be as rich as they are without input from the Indian Empire. Not just generals becoming rich with loot, but company men making money in the spice trade and buying luxury goods to ship back to the English estates. Yes, a lot of things were looted from India, but a lot were bought completely normally. To an Indian art dealer, what did it matter if the rich buyer was an Indian town governor or an English merchant, as long as the cash was put on the barrel. I want to emphasise 
this complex web of trade and ownership happened alongside the slavery and looting of empire. Indian carpets and Chinese silk wallpaper were highly prized. The Honourable Ick grew in India to become a privatised government, trading entity, military power and infrastructure builder. There were also large numbers of independent merchants and the army of hangers-on, both male and female, from young women looking for husbands to skilled professionals hiring out their services. The company created jobs and opportunities. Naturally, the existing gentry of England sneered at the newly rich company men, especially the super-rich nabobs. But some of the older aristocrats certainly made bank themselves from the company. The newly rich, in turn, were buying land and estates back in Britain for many reasons. For some, it was to have a place to rest and recover from a gruelling career in the unhealthy climates of India, perhaps shaken with malaria and thin from dysentery. For others, it was the chance to follow the classic gentry route to power, buying land, then buying a seat in Parliament. Some wanted to fulfil childhood dreams of never living in poverty again and being a proper gentleman in a fine house rather than, say, the impoverished son of a forgotten vicar. Others needed the status to restore faded family fortunes. Some wanted to become scientific gentlemen with the leisure and space to pursue natural philosophy or geology. Some had gained immense experience in agriculture and estate management, working for the company, and wanted to run a country estate of their own to utilise their hard-earned skills. Many company men became more immersed in Indian culture and married local women. This started to create what were called the Anglo-Indians. These were people of mixed-race origins with Indian and British ancestry, or people of unmixed Indian descent, born or living in the United Kingdom, and people of unmixed British descent, born and living in India. Perhaps the most striking I came across was David Octoloni. He was born in Boston, Massachusetts, of all places, to a Scottish father and an Anglo-Welsh mother, before moving to India and joining the company army. His military talent saw him shoot up the ranks and a stellar performance, holding off a vastly superior enemy in a siege, was praised by Wellington himself. He was a great general and basically won the war against Nepal. He eventually threw himself into Indian culture, converted to Islam and then married 13 Indian noblewomen or in the slightly snobbish British view, kept 13 concubines because snobbery and racism were still a daily occurrence. He took them on a daily ride on each of their own individual elephants, a display of wealth and sheer self-assurance that is pretty mind-blowing, especially when you consider that back in Europe, even a Casanova or a Don Juan was only taking on one or two women at a time, and that was already pretty scandalous, never mind taking 13 of them on a simultaneous elephant ride. The only way I can describe it is what I believe the youngsters call being a giga-chad.
a word I thought I would never use, but clearly in 18th century terms, he was a giga-chad. Let us pray I never have to use the word again. Of course, it wasn't just the English, Scottish, Welsh and Irish who were active in India. There were French, Americans, Germans, Dutch and many more adventurers. One particularly colourful adventurer was Alexander Gardner. According to him, he was born in 1785 in Wisconsin to a Scottish father and a Spanish mother. He might equally have been Irish and lying about his birth. Records are unclear on the subject. He moved to Russia to try and join the army, failed, and wandered down through Central Asia. He became a commander in some Afghan forces, married an Afghan woman and had a son, both of whom were killed by the Afghan king. He fled into parts of Central Asia that aren't easy to find on maps and don't even exist anymore, somewhere up on the roof of the world. He went back to Afghanistan as an outlaw before being run off again. He ended up in the Punjab and served as a commander in the great Sikh army of Ranjit Singh just before the first Anglo-Afghan war. He was a magnificent figure in full native dress that was made from Scottish tartan and topped with a turban and a long beard. He was a rogue, an adventurer, a soldier, a fighter, and inspired parts of the famous story, The Man Who Would Be King. He was covered in wounds by the end and had to use a clamp to keep his throat wound closed when he was eating or drinking. You can read his autobiography and various history books and see if you have any better luck sorting incredible fact from fiction. He was pretty amazing and appeared in one of the Flashman books too. I mention him because obviously he was fascinating, also to show that the Honourable Ick wasn't as strange an interloper in India as you might think. It had a long history as a place where men from strange backgrounds could make their fortune. To many Indian rulers, the employees of the Honourable Ick would have simply appeared as somewhat badly dressed spivs on the make, with certainly nothing like the cultural meltdown the Aztecs and Incas suffered, suddenly encountering the Europeans for the first time. There were many setbacks along the way. The rulers in general expected the Honourable Ick to be properly submissive and obey local laws, even if the laws were pretty draconian or even bloodthirsty. In the early years, a foolish company director grew tired of what he considered oppression from local Muslim rulers and having failed to grasp the enormous power of the Mughal Empire, attempted to challenge the local rulers with a small company fleet from London. This was bad timing as the Mughal Empire had just finished crushing its main rivals and was now the supreme power in the whole subcontinent. The Honourable Ick was utterly defeated, its military forces devastated, its factories, trading posts, houses and colonial outposts were ransacked. The company was forced to send representatives to grovel to the emperor to beg for the release of prisoners and to be allowed to trade again. What all this shows is that the Indian subcontinent was not a single unified Hindu nation conquered first by Muslims, then by the British, as a lot of modern Hindu nationalist revisionist 
history, quotes, claims it was a geographical area with a large number of individual kingdoms and territories, and rulers could change for a variety of reasons. Many areas fought each other and formed complex alliances of convenience to overcome rivals. The Honourable Ick was more than happy to exploit rivalry between native rulers to extend its own influence or to make money. Divide and conquer was a popular tool in the toolbox. The Mughal Empire ruled northern and central India at its height, even establishing limited rulership over most of southern India, but then fractured, partly due to the cost of its wars of expansion. If you hear the myth that the British invaded and conquered the Mughal Empire, it is just that, a myth. The empire went through the typical decline of empires, as provinces or barely conquered territories rebelled and the tax burden increased, whilst the tax base declined. Peasant revolts sprung up too. People remembered old allegiances and ethnic identities, then rose up against the distant emperors. Nor were pre-modern empires and kingdoms as static as nation-states. As Roman Studler said in his excellent book, The Great Divergence Reconsidered, Europe, India and the Rise to Global Economic Power. Quote, Under Oranziger Beg's reign, the Mughal Empire expanded so much that it could hardly be ruled any longer. To finance his sudden conquests, which had the aim of uniting northern and southern India under his rule, Aran Gazeb's demand for revenue became increasingly oppressive. This in turn initiated widespread peasant revolt that added ever more rebellious climate in a situation of already decaying political stability. After Aurangzeb's death, the short succession of weak Mughal emperors aggravated the situation further and led to the rapid erosion of Mughal central power in the 1730s. The Maharas raided both Delhi, the Mughal capital, and Surat, which subsequently lost within a few decades its role as the great port. Mughal power was rapidly diminishing in a struggle with regional powers. The supremacy of parts of India emerged with Afghans, the Marathas, and several Mughal governors being the main contenders, along with the Europeans. Meanwhile, the Honourable East India Company remained very marginal to the Indian political scene until the middle of the 18th century. Not surprisingly, decay, political instability and insecurity of life and property resulted in dwindling trade. Merchants became an easy target for robbers and government officials and foreigners alike as trade became increasingly unsafe or discontinued altogether. End quote. The nation of India itself did not exist until independence in 1947. Instead, the Honourable Ick was part of a world of a rich, powerful, but declining empire, a world where the local rulers often enjoyed immense autonomy and where transport was incredibly difficult, with the monsoon presenting immense challenges to building and maintaining transport routes. 
the Great Battle of Plessé in 1757 and the follow-on naval campaigns really changed everything in India. The Honourable Ick had been expanding its small fortified trading posts and the ruler of Bengal made the enormous error of responding by murdering British civilians by throwing them into a tiny room where they suffocated or died of heat exhaustion. The British response was the first major critical test of the power of the privatised army. The Honourable Ick was vastly outnumbered and outgunned, yet it cleverly bribed a disgruntled commander to sit the battle out. Even so, it should have been a massacre. Instead, it was one of the most crushing victories in military history. A mixed Honourable Ick force of barely 3,000 infantry with only eight cannons defeated over 50,000 Bengal infantry and cavalry with over 50 cannon who were helped by French mercenaries and the French East India Company. Bengal was now owned by the British, but more accurately, it was owned by a private company that was only nominally controlled by Parliament in England. The tactic of divide and rule combined with organic growth were huge parts of the company's success. How much of this was even under the control of the company board itself was sometimes debatable. There could be a 12-month delay in letters from the frontier in India getting back to London. Riches were flowing back to Britain, but also stimulating the trading economy of various ports in India. Not that everyone was a winner. Many Europeans died in droves in India. Bengal was seen as both wealthy and unhealthy. In the first year of establishing the settlement of Calcutta, for instance, 460 of its thousand European inhabitants died. The 18th century also made something else very clear. The Honourable Ick was huge and almost two separate companies. One, there was a naval trading company with the East, especially China, and one that was Indian. The naval side of things wasn't just the vast merchant fleet shipping goods and people to and from India and the Far East. It also involved surveying and huge amounts of anti-pirate activity, or things the Honourable Ick deemed piracy, which sometimes included rebel groups fighting local rulers. The line between merchant, trader, rebel, outlaw and pirate could be incredibly blurred. Pirates were often hired by the local state to wage irregular warfare against other native opponents or even prey on the great merchant ships of the Honourable Ick. Asking who was a good guy or bad guy in these situations is usually pointless, but there were plenty of pirates who were more than happy to rape, murder and steal, whilst many Honourable Ick officers believed themselves the good guys. Other locals would complain about interference with long-standing traditions, meddling in local politics and lack of respect for their culture. On the other hand, the British replied they didn't respect any culture that encouraged endemic rape. Morality could be very flexible out in Borneo and on the Malabar 
and Angian coasts in India and in Malaysia. In general, the Honourable Ick saw itself at least as bound by the rule of English law and anti-piracy. Privately, I'm sure a few company officers dealt with pirates and didn't ask too many questions about where some of those fine cargoes of silk came from. As historian John Ridge puts it in his excellent paper, To Stand Against the Company, a study of the Honourable Ick and piracy in the Indian Ocean world. Quote, One key point to keep in mind when studying piracy is the ambiguity of terms relating to those who seize ships and ocean-borne goods. The phrase one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter can be applied to pirate and privateer. A pirate is typically a criminal who practices unlawful seizure of ships and accompanying goods on a body of water. Such actions were commonly punished by early, modern and modern governments by arrest, prosecution and execution. There is also the term privateer. A privateer is someone authorised by a government or political entity to seize ships and goods belonging to a particular political entity or entities as designated in a letter of mark. During periods of war or quasi-war, early modern and modern European countries often issued the captains a privately owned or joint stock company owned ships, letters of mark, to prey upon the shipping of their enemies at sea. These documents made the theft lawful in the eyes of the employing. The line between pirate and privateer became muddled on occasion, depending on whether or not a country or political entity recognised the legitimacy of another power, or when advantageous. This can be seen with interactions between the British East India Company and political entities clustered around the edges of the Indian Ocean world. In the case of the Mughal Empire, the idea has been posed that those the British East India Company saw as pirates are now seen by historians like Rousseau and MacDougall as the naval leaders of certain princely states in the Indian subcontinent. Similarly, they have claimed that pirate has been used as a matter of convenience. Like Rousseau points out, a lot of perceptions regarding piracy and the legitimate or illegitimate use of force depended on linguistic and legal factors regarding attacks on ships. In the application of such force, sovereignty also played a key role. A lot of armed maritime players claimed affiliation, in some part, with land-based political systems, believing their mode of sovereignty even trumped that of other players. In the case of the British East India Company, such factors legitimised a mercantile-based company to take armed actions against seaborne enemies that posed a threat commercially and politically. End quote. You can see how, from a merchant's point of view, it doesn't matter whether the attacker is an independent pirate or has been told by a native ruler to go be a privateer. The merchant ship was a civilian ship being attacked without a declaration of war, the same as a modern oil tanker captain in the Gulf 
doesn't really care if the attackers are Somali freelance pirates or Houthi state-sponsored ones. They just want protection and dead pirates. In India, the Honourable Ick ruled territories it had divided in three great presidencies, Bengal, Madras and Bombay. They competed and even went to war with some of the other great kingdoms in India, reforming and running what were effectively new countries was a huge task, as historian William Dalrymple notes about the work of Governor General Warren Hastings in Bengal. Quote, he quickly got to work, beginning the process of turning the ICK into an administrative service. Hastings' first major change was to move all the functions of government from Murshidabadi to Calcutta. Throughout 1773, Hastings worked with extraordinary energy. He unified currency systems, ordered the codification of Hindu laws and digests of Muslim law books, reformed the tax and customs system, fixed land revenue and stopped the worst oppression being carried out on behalf of private traders by the local agents, he created an efficient postal service backed by a proper cartographical survey of India by James Rennell and built a series of public granaries, including the great Gola at Patna, to make sure the famine of 1770 to 1771 was never repeated. Underlying all Hastings' work was a deep respect for the land he had lived in since his teens. Hastings genuinely liked India, and by the time he became governor, spoke not only good Bengali and Urdu, but also fluent court and literary Persian. End quote. The work was also complicated by continuous battles with the French, who happily worked for any local ruler who paid and who were determined to beat their old enemies, the English. Eventually, the French were weakened by Hastings and the company, but his habit of using extorted local treasure to pay for military campaigns opened him up to allegations of corruption, despite his popularity in India with both the Honourable Ick and the locals. His political opponents swooped down on him after he retired. He was tried on a vast list of dubious charges, some of which were outrageous, but others might have had a kernel of truth. It took two full days to completely read the indictment of charges. After an enormous seven-year trial in the House of Lords from 1788 to 1795, he was fully acquitted, helped by a lot of supportive witness testimony. He was paid over £4,000 a year by the Honourable Ick in compensation and used it to buy the ancestral medieval lands of the Hastings family and build the wonderful country house called Dalesford House. This was a family dream, descended from ancient nobility. Warren Hastings' grandfather had sold the lands to clear some debts. Now, powerful Warren Hastings had risen up through the Honourable Ick to the heights of Indian conqueror and Nabob. He had restored 
what his ancestors had lost. Aristocratic land was back under familial control, not by achievements in England or impressing a king, but by going to India and working for a private company. Of course, some unkind critics asked why he'd stated at his trial that he had never made money off his official position, yet had suddenly come up with the tens of thousands of pounds needed to build a neoclassical country estate with elaborate gardens. The gardens alone had cost £54,000, with another 90000 on garden ornaments. The message was clear. You could get rich in India, and you could be pretty imperialist, but there was still some accountability, however shaky. Future Victorian administrators knew that the more open corruption of the Georgians was not tolerated in the age of Victoria and Albert. Eventually, all the major military powers capable of opposing the three presidencies were broken, and some of the final blows were struck by the Wellesley family during the Second Maratha War. You, of course, know the most famous as the Duke of Wellington, but he learned his military trade in India, supported by his politically powerful brother, when asked as an old man about the victory he was most proud of in his career. It wasn't Waterloo the Duke named, but the Battle of Assay in India. At Assay in 1803, General Wellington took 6,500 British and Madras Presidency Indian troops and Mysore Irregular Cavalry with around 20 cannons against a Maratha army estimated to be at least 40 thousand strong with more than a hundred cannons. He broke the power of the great Maratha kingdom of central India, established a full territorial link between the three presidencies, mastered logistics in difficult terrain, and had done what Alexander the Great had failed to do, become the supreme military power in the Indian subcontinent. That meant he had added over 50 million people to the British Empire, and untold riches to boot. The Third Maratha War was a similar affair, but without the dash of Wellington, the Marathas had failed to reorganise and modernise their forces after the crushing defeat of the previous war, still relying too heavily on mercenary officers, weapons bought from overseas, and a lack of logistics and supply management that was becoming the hallmark of their British opponents there would still be major wars to fight throughout the Victorian era, such as the Anglo-Sikh War, when the Honourable Ick fought the great Sikh kingdom in the Punjab. It was considered one of the great campaigns of the Victorian era, and it is fascinating from a military history and espionage point of view. During the Victorian era, the Honourable Ick fought in Afghanistan, Burma, China, and even Abyssinia. Yet, there is something very different about the Honourable Ick armies. They were officered by white British troops, but the enlisted men were Indians from the various states and ethnic groups. They were sometimes supported by the British Regular Army, often just called Queen's Regiments, as opposed to Company Regiments. 
As the British National Army Museum website says, quote, by the early 19th century, the company's army was 250,000 strong, larger than that of many nations. The officers were British and there were several regiments composed only of Europeans, but the vast majority of company soldiers were Indian. The company was quick to combine Western weapons, uniform and military training with Indian martial traditions. In a society where warriors were well respected, it could always attract new recruits with the prospect of good pay, pensions, land grants and honoured status. Although some British army officers transferred to its service, the company also operated a system of patronage in Britain to commission officers directly. In 1809, the company established a college at Addiscombe in Surrey to train its officer cadets in military subjects and Indian languages. End quote. This can be quite hard to grasp if British activity in India is only seen through an exclusively conquest-focused lens. It makes much more sense if the Honourable Ick is seen as another power player in a continent with a large number of other rival power players. India had a long-standing warrior tradition, and to many Indians, being a soldier was a proud and reasonably well-paid profession. If the company was seen as just another powerful ruling entity and not an imperial invader, then it would make much more sense for native men to join. Conditions of service were often better than under many native rulers, especially as the British didn't use torture as a punishment, and even flogging was illegal in the company armed forces. Execution was only in accordance with strict British laws involving treason or mutiny, and not on the local Maharaja having a drunken meltdown. Remember, as I said last episode, and earlier in this one, India was not a unified nation, and Indian nationalism was not a highly developed political force. I'm not saying the Honourable Ick was welcomed with open arms by everyone, or that it was some benevolent ruling entity. It was still used by the British government as an imperial tool, and it was vital in the creation of empire, not just in India, but in Afghanistan, China, and many other places. But it didn't operate purely as a command and conquer force, seen only as an invader, even though it was clearly militaristic and expansionist. It provided manpower for colonial wars, and the sepoy and Sikh regiments contained some exceptionally fine soldiers. The Indian armies were tough, professional and brave. If you are a military history fan, get your nose out of yet another book about Napoleon and start looking at warfare in India during the Victorian era, which we will hear a lot about. In many ways, the Honourable Ick and the Queen's regiments in India are the foundations of modern militaries. It was in India that officers learnt what would become modern logistics, campaigns across all terrains, mixed forces, river transport, railway building to transport hubs, rapid artillery practice, close quarter battle 
and sniping in Afghanistan, alliance building, professional staff officers, endless maps, and close coordination with naval assets, use of full metal cartridges and rifles. Of course, people joined for different reasons. Some wanted to escape the poverty and mindless toil of farms. Others needed money to feed families. Many would have enlisted in any military, and the company paid well. Others wanted to escape bandits and lawlessness as the Mughal Empire declined and fractured. One excellent account is by Sita Ram, entitled From Sepoy to Subadar, being the life and adventures of Subadar Sita Ram, a native officer of the Bengal army, written and narrated by himself. Quote, My mother had a brother by name Hanuman, who was in the service of the company, Bahadur, and was a Jamar in an infantry battalion. He'd stayed home on leave for six months, and on his way to his own home, he stayed with my father. My uncle was a very handsome man and of great personal strength. He used of an evening to sit on a seat before our house and relate the wonders of the world he'd seen and the prosperity of the great company, Bahadur, he served to a crowd of eager listeners who with open mouths and staring eyes took in all his marvel as undoubted truths. None of his listeners were more attentive than myself and from these recitals I imbibed strong desire to enter the world and try the fortune of a soldier. Nothing else could I think of day or night. The rank of Jamada I looked on as quite equal to that of the Ghazid in Haidar, the king of Yud himself. In fact, never having seen the latter, I naturally considered my uncle as of even more importance. He had such a splendid necklace of gold beads and a curious bright red coat covered with gold buttons and above all he appeared to have an unlimited supply of gold mahars. I longed for the time when I might possess the same, which I then thought would be directly, that I became the company's Bahadur servant. My uncle had observed how attentive I was to own his stories and how military order had inflamed my breast and certainly he did all in his power to encourage me. He never said anything about it before my mother or father or the priest. Still, he repeatedly told me privately that if I wished to be a soldier, he would take me back with him on his return to the regiment. How I longed to mention this to my mother, but dared not for well I knew her dearest wish was for me to become a priest, however, one day... When I'd been reading with Julet Bram about the mighty battles fought by the gods, I fairly told him my wish to become a soldier. How horrified he seemed, he reproached me, declaring that all the instructions he had so laboured to impart to me were thrown away and half the stories my uncle had told me were false, that I might be flogged and certainly should be defiled by entering the company service. One hundred other terrors he conjured up, but these had no effect on me. End quote. I'm sure generations of young boys could empathise. Excitement, a nice uniform, money, and getting away from overbearing parents. An enthusiastic volunteer is the best kind of soldier, and much better than a willing draftee, or even worse, an unwilling conscript. Let's also remember that trade is a wide-ranging activity. It could be distant and impersonal, limited to transactional only, or competitive and diverse, but it could also be a way to make friends, create networks, and change people's tastes. There wasn't a highly developed taste for many Indian goods, until the Honourable Ick 
stimulated the consumer market and in turn the Industrial Revolution permitted the expansion of the middle-class consumer market as well as the high-end market. Overconcentration of wealth creates inequality, limiting spending to key individuals instead of a mass market and is therefore bad for both trade and the wider economy. Chinese wallpaper wasn't in demand until the Honourable It began to reliably import it, but it remained a very niche luxury item. It was so closely associated with the Honourable Ick that it was called India Hangings. As the excellent book, The East India Company at Home, 1757 to 1857, says, quote, made from bast fibres, material from the inner bark of trees, such as paper mulberry and blue sandalwood, and backed with a thicker paper made of bamboo fibres, laminated together with starch, Chinese wallpaper was, and still is, hand-painted in vivid colours, sometimes with the aid of block-printed outlines, with flowers, foliage and birds, and more rarely with scenes from Chinese life. The history of Chinese wallpaper is inextricably linked to that of the East India Company, in whose ships it's travelled from Canton, modern-day Guangzhou, to London. It remains a distinct and luxury product to this day. Chinese wallpaper was rarely closely imitated by competing European manufacturers, unlike porcelain or the lacquer that spawned japanned wares. It did not accommodate Western fashion cycles like cotton. It remained a small-scale private trade, retaining its elite status, distinct identity, and high price over time. Its acquisition was as likely to come through gifting as through purchase, and Chinese wallpaper thus avoided becoming a new consumer commodity. End quote. From the East India Company at Home, 1757 to 1857. Those great merchant ships would have stopped in India or South Africa or the Australian colonies on their way home. Goods would have been shuffled, local food and materials bought, sailors would have paid prostitutes and for food and drink at local inns. Money from China would have circulated in India and money from India around the white settler colonies and then back to the United Kingdom. Then the process would reverse as those ships went back out carrying fresh company staff, imperial administrators, soldiers, explorers, women looking for husbands or to escape from husbands. And so the Honourable East India Company became the new Silk Road, recreating the ancient trade networks in new forms as well as turbocharging existing ones. Trade enriches humanity, not just with money, but with the movement of goods and the fusion of goods, culture and ideas. It helps break down borders and to make everyone better off. Yet the trade in Chinese wallpaper was slightly odd since it was not allowed to be traded officially by the company. Instead, it was part of the personal trading privilege 
of the various ship's captains and merchants who could use the company auction housing and shipping as part of a private allowance, sort of like a modern salesman can be given use of company facilities for private trades on the side. Above a certain level, the Honourable Ick might charge a fee, and there were often other charges on top. This is a good example of why thinking of the Honourable Ick and even the wider empire in a simplistic command and control style is a mistake. The luxury paper also changed hands during ritual gift giving, much as company executives today take each other out for golfing, meals and football matches. Even famous authors like Sir Walter Scott got in on the act. He planned the decor for his baronial Scottish mansion personally, including Chinese wallpaper. Many Scottish families were becoming very rich from the Honourable Ick and Empire, and luxury goods from China and India spread amongst the great Scottish estates, just as they had in England. Above the company, but benefiting it and facilitated by it, was the world of diplomacy. This included diplomatic gifts, trade, presents, and mutual swaps. These could be magnificent chairs, elaborate boxes, chess pieces, cups and ceremonial weapons and armour, beautiful robes, and much more. A great place to visit for this is Windsor Castle, which has a staggering display of jaw-dropping diplomatic gifts. Whilst Chinese wallpaper remained a niche gift, other products were in wider circulation and brought the notion of empire straight into the great country houses and even middle-class homes of the United Kingdom. Ivory, in particular, Indian craftspeople had developed techniques to make elaborate ivory veneers and were expert craftsmen. Ivory was seen as the trademark of the empire and Indian ivory carving was a peak of physical art. When Warren Hastings died, Dalesford House, which we mentioned earlier, went to his wife, then after her to a son-in-law. It was sold to clear debts in 1853. Front and centre of the sales catalogue were the solid ivory chairs and sofas. Curiously, by the time Princess Victoria became Queen Victoria, the might of the Honourable East India Company was already in rapid decline. If you think about it, the British had only really established control over the bulk of India in 1817, after Wellington beat the Maratha. In 1813, a worried British government had already abolished its exclusive trade monopoly. By 1825, one MP raged in Parliament that, quote, The idea of consigning over a joint stock company, the political administration of an empire, people with 100 million souls, was so preposterous that if it were now for the first time proposed, it would be deemed not merely an absurdity, but an insult to the meanest understanding of the realm. End quote. In 1832, it was forbidden to trade and became only an administrative arm. 
of the state. It remained an engine of imperialism and obviously an enthusiastic contributor to the Great Exhibition, supported by the great adventurous and collector Fanny Parks. As the East India Company at Home, 1757-1857 says, quote, In 1851, the year of the Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations, Fanny instigated and funded the construction of a grand moving diorama of Hindustan, which was staged at the Asiatic Gallery in the Baker Street Bazaar. India, Britain's jewel in the crown, featured centre stage at the Great Exhibition. The Honourable Ick itself, having been one of the most enthusiastic supporters of the enterprise from its inception, the company directors saw the exhibition as an opportunity to astonish visitors with exquisitely crafted riches from Britain's Eastern Empire. They also saw it as a way of promoting a new self-image through the display of objects from the subcontinent. The exhibition constituted an important means of recreating India as a spectacle and justifying further imperial endeavours on the subcontinent. End quote. This was not a Britain lacking in self-confidence or questioning the morals of empire or feeling guilty about its role in empire around the world. This was a confident imperial Britain, proud of itself, its trade and its wealth. Or at least that's one way to read it. Reformers, including Prince Albert, had a very different view of Britain, empire, the endemic poverty and abuses. The Honourable Ick would have one last great explosive part in Victorian history. It had set the board in India for the Victorians and its eventual death in the Indian Mutiny of 1857 would upend the board and scatter the pieces. Still, as Kipling would say, that's a tale for another day, best beloved. The Victorians had to consider the problem of governing the subcontinent. It was clearly the absolute jewel of the empire. It was rich, huge, and, despite the Honourable Ick still being in charge, it had a lot of independent kingdoms and provinces. If you think organising things in your own country is hard, try doing it from halfway around the world, using pens, paper, and sailing ships. Especially when you realise that Britain is 13 times smaller than India and needed to run it with a tiny civil service and only 250,000 odd troops, many of whom dropped dead of disease with alarming frequency. Yet the British managed, and India would produce some of the most remarkable figures of the Victorian era. Some of them were eccentric adventurers, scientists, raving religious lunatics turned soldiers, and others were the literal basis for boys' own adventure heroes. Nor was it just the Victorian men in India having adventures. There were a lot of famous female adventuresses. The awesome Juliana Morton, for instance, was born in Calcutta in 1825 to an officer of the Royal Bengal Engineers. Her troubled childhood and her troubled marriage 
led her to impulsiveness and depression. She decided to travel to lift her mood and, as she said in her wonderful book, Mrs. Harvey, The Adventures of a Lady in Tartary, Tibet, China and Kashmir, quote, Under the pressure of severe domestic affliction, which was paralysing every energy of mind and body, I formed the project of visiting these almost unknown countries. I found no means so efficacious in enabling me to escape from the demon thought as the constant change of scene in travelling and the fascinating excitement inseparable from wanderings in wild and unexplored regions, lands where things that own not man's dominion dwell, and mortal foot hath ne'er or rarely been. I had solitude without its weariness, and in the wilds of the snowy Himalayas I almost forgot the world I had left, and the memory of many bitter sorrows and trials was softened if not banished. End quote. That really sums up the often restless energy of Victorian India. Victorians often just did things and worried about the consequences later. Next time, we will turn our attention north, to the borders of India to Afghanistan, where British military power was about to be rocked. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes. Or you can go to Patreon and search for Age Victoria Podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.